Good morning and welcome everybody. I want to apologise again that I'm not with you this morning. I want to express a special thanks to George for all the work he's been doing for many months, setting up the video and the audio for the broadcast of the meetings over Zoom. Uh, It's been a great blessing uh, to people like me, so thanks George. Let's get started this morning. Having finished our study in Galatians two weeks ago, uh, we're moving on for this next couple of months to look at the topic of prayer. Now obviously this is a huge subject, but it's a subject that relates deeply to a lot of different aspects of our lives and our faith. So in asking questions about prayer, not just asking things like how do we pray or why do we pray, we're also asking much deeper questions like how do we as creatures relate to God and interact with our Creator? How does God move and work within the world? What does God seek to achieve in this world? When and why might God intervene in the world? And when and why might God hold back from intervention? What should we want for our own lives and for those close to us? What should we desire? The prayer seems to be an increasingly controversial topic in our secularising world. On the one hand, it can be a dangerous practice that needs to be controlled and regulated by the government, while at the same time, it's also a powerless action that ends up costing lives because of its fruitlessness in lieu of what's perceived as real action. So what is it? Is prayer powerful and possibly even dangerous if used inappropriately? Or is it nothing more than a feel-good gesture? that has no worldly benefit beyond the confines of our own heads. So, like I said, some very big and deep questions, important questions. And these are some of the things that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. But for our purposes this morning, and by way of introduction, I'm going to be speaking most broadly about the questions, what is prayer and why do we pray? As I just said, I think we can all recognise that as Christians, prayer is or ought to be an important part of our lives. And yet, I think we'll also acknowledge that it's something that many of us struggle with. For one reason or another, we struggle to find the time to pray or the motivation to pray. We might struggle with knowing what we should pray for or even what we shouldn't pray for. I know, speaking for myself, that I can say an amen to all of the above. In fact, I asked myself why I, of all people, uh, was tasked with opening a series on prayer. Surely surely there's others among us uh, who might be better qualified to speak about a deep, rich prayer life with some authority. But, be that as it may, I'm it. And I think, or at least I hope, that in my talking about these two questions this morning, we might go a long way to understanding prayer better, but also towards opening ourselves up to a richer, deeper prayer life. So let's dive in this morning on the first question. What is prayer? So let me start off with basically what the word means when it's used in the Bible. Firstly, in the Old Testament, the word most commonly translated as pray or prayer as palal or tapilla, they're related in the Hebrew. This word means to judge or mediate or intercede. 
So you can see the relational dynamic to the idea. It's something between two people. But you get the sense that these people might not necessarily be equals. There's a relationship of difference that requires some sort of mediation, some sort of go-between. I think that difference is more apparent in the other slightly less common word in the Old Testament, and that is atar. This means to plead or supplicate, to request, possibly even beg. So you can see the notion of a lesser coming before a greater to intercede or ask something of them. This is also apparent when we move to the New Testament. There most of the words translated as pray or prayer also carry that idea of asking or requesting. For example, ereteo or deomai. But we see also some more nuance in some of the words. For example, there's the word eukamai, which is literally uh, sorry, which can mean a wish. So you get that sense of an expressed desire, something we desire to ask of God. And also, prosukamai, which literally means eukamai, with or near. So there's that idea of coming alongside, which reminds us that we're praying to or with somebody. It involves a connection between two or more people. And that brings us to the final word, which is parakaleo, which is very similar to the word we might be familiar with, paraclete, which means to comfort. This is how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, as one who comes alongside and brings comfort. So prayer in a similar way is a coming alongside, a relational act, and an act that brings comfort and assurance to the prayer. So I hope that gives us some background about what we're talking about when we talk about prayer. Fundamentally, it's an act of making a request to God, a God who is greater and other than us, because of course God doesn't pray to us in the way that we pray to him. But in sharing those requests and desires with God, God comes alongside us and offers comfort. I can think of no better passage that best expresses this idea of prayer than Paul in Philippians chapter 4, where he writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's obviously a lot that we can say about this passage, and I'm sure we'll refer to it many times in the coming weeks. But for now, let's just say that prayer need not be any more complicated or mysterious than that. Laying our concerns and requests before God, and God coming alongside with peace and comfort. But in order to give us a fuller perspective of prayer throughout the Bible, I want to just quickly give a brief history of the nature and practice of prayer throughout the Bible and see how it develops. I'm not going to go too deeply into this, because I know we're going to be looking at examples of prayer throughout the Bible later on in the series. But I think this introductory point, looking at some broad brushstrokes of the history, uh, might be useful to get us started. 
So we find the earliest reference to anything like we might understand as prayer today in Genesis chapter 4. You'll notice I'm excluding things like direct conversations or encounters with God, such as Adam and Eve in the garden, or with Cain following his murder of Abel. Although prayer obviously is about talking to God, these types of direct encounter where God talks back and forth is, I think, a different and specific phenomenon, which we won't be going into. But the instance I'm suggesting is the first reference to prayer, is at the end of chapter 4. After the narrative moves beyond the murder of Abel, Cain is punished. We see pride and evil personified in the man Lamech. And possibly as a contrast to him and those men that we see, we see the birth of Seth and his son Enosh. But before moving on to the story and lineage of Noah in chapter 5, there's this brief comment at the end of chapter of chapter 4 in verse 26 where it says at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord so you get an idea of prayer as a calling on God's name asking his favour or intercession this notion of calling on the name of the Lord is one we see regularly through the Old Testament it's often used in connection with sacrificial practices For example, in Genesis chapter 13, where Abram or Abraham had built an altar, and we read, There Abram called on the name of the Lord. We also see other examples where the intercession or request of God is explicit, such as Exodus 32, where Moses pleads on behalf of the Israelites following uh, their sin with the golden calf. In this instance, God answers Moses' prayer and relents of his punishment. But it's worth noting here that such appeals to God aren't always successful. In fact, later in the same chapter, Moses again appeals to God to forgive the Israelites. Yet, this time, God doesn't relent and they are punished. So you can see early on, people are calling on God and asking and pleading of him. And sometimes God says yes, But other times he says no. But what is interesting is that there's very little explicit mention of prayer throughout the Mosaic law. To be sure, the sense of supplication before God is implicit in the whole sacrificial system. And there are even expressed verbal uh, verbal exchanges associated with sacrifices that we might call prayer. The priest or the, the, the person offering the sacrifice calls out to God, through that act. But there's certainly no instruction for habitual or frequent prayer of God's people in the way that we might associate with other religions like Islam, for example. But we do find examples of people praying personal prayers that we would readily recognise as such. Perhaps one of the best known examples of that is Hannah in 1 Samuel, which she describes as her pouring out her soul to the Lord. In this example, she's praying at the tabernacle, which may or may not be significant. But if you notice the response of Eli, the priest who finds her praying, it looks like what she was doing was in some way unexpected or unusual because Eli doesn't instantly recognise her as someone who's praying, assuming instead that she's a drunkard. So... 
either the depth of Hannah's conviction or emotion that she expressed while praying was unusual, or even the practice of lay Israelites praying at the tabernacle was unusual. But at any rate, after talking with Hannah, Eli isn't surprised by the idea of someone praying to God and asking something from him. In fact, that's what Eli assumes is the point of Hannah's prayer. It wasn't just a display of emotion on Hannah's part or some mystical merging of spirits or anything like that. Prayer was simply calling upon the name of the Lord, asking for his intercession in some way, in the case of Hannah, for a child. We also see prophets calling on the name of the Lord in some way, perhaps most famously Elijah on Mount Carmel, when he offered a simple prayer for God to light the offering and defy the priests of Baal. And it, of course, had immediate results uh, in setting the offering alight. So we can see that although it wasn't mandated as a practice under the law, God's people did indeed pray. And we can see more examples of such prayer throughout the Psalms. Because, of course, although these are obviously poems and songs, many of them can also be seen as prayers to God. We find there a much richer notion of prayer beyond simply asking God for things. We see the depth of relationship that can be expressed through prayer. But of course we do see requests for things, such as protection or healing, but also non-physical needs, such as forgiveness and even vindication from one's enemies. But we also see other things like desire for communion with God, even just simple praise of God and who he is. So we can begin to see prayer as much more than just a transactional means of asking things of God, but as a genuine conduit of relationship. And I think we see prayer become more prominent still during the period of the Babylonian exile and following on from that time. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it, and realised that it was during this time that the temple had been destroyed, and in its place, while in Babylon, we see the introduction of synagogues, and prayer became a significant part of the community life in the synagogue. And that remained in place uh, through to Jesus' day. Since animal sacrifices were no longer possible without the temple, you can imagine how prayer became an increasing significance for supplication, before God, both individually but also as a community in a way that would be recognisable to us today. So we see examples of this in the life of Daniel, who we know was in the habit of praying three times a day. We don't know how significantly these practices differed after the exile from how they might have behaved before the exile. But I do kind of get a feeling that makes me wonder that the Israelites had maybe started to learn their lesson and were more deliberately internalising their relationship uh, with God and interaction with God on a personal level rather than just a nationalistic one, uh, taking their relationship with God as his people for granted. So that brings us through to the times of the New Testament 
Now, there's a lot we can say about both Jesus' teaching and personal example of prayer, but we'll talk more about that in detail in another lesson. But suffice to say that Jesus expected his disciples to pray, and that prayer should be characterised by humility, persistence and confidence. And that's what we see of the disciples in the book of Acts and beyond. They're described uh, following Pentecost as devoted to prayer. And we frequently find them gathered together in prayer. For example, while shooting Judas's replacement, or following Peter and John's appearance before the Sanhedrin, or during Peter's imprisonment and miraculous release, surely due in no small part due to those very prayers. But it wasn't just the whole community together at once. Prayer was a particular priority of the apostles, specifically, who divested responsibility for the food distribution to make sure that neither task were neglected. And it was also something done alone. For example, we find Peter praying alone on the roof of a house. It's at that point that he has the vision leading up to the conversion of Cornelius and his family. But Peter was praying alone. And finally we see in the letters of Paul just how often he talks about prayer, either encouraging his readers to pray or praying himself uh, in the letters. But perhaps the most significant thing that Paul offers on the topic of prayer is the involvement of the Holy Spirit. We're told to pray in the Spirit And indeed, somehow the Spirit actually intercedes for us, helping us to pray. Now, I'm not going to go into details about what that means now, as I'm sure it'll come up in a future lesson. But I think it does show how highly God values this avenue of prayer for us, uh, that he's actively involved in the process through his Spirit, one of the very many blessings we have of the Spirit dwelling in us. So I know that's a very quick skim, but I hope it's been worthwhile to give us a quick sense of prayer throughout the Bible, from the earliest days of mankind through to now us in the church. And hopefully it puts some ideas into our minds about what we think about as prayer. But for the rest of our time this morning, I want to just quickly wrestle with the question of why do we pray? Of course, if we want to be simplistic about it, we can just answer that question with, because we're commanded to. And that would be right, of course. I've just mentioned how Paul, for example, directed us to pray without ceasing and to pray in the Spirit. But clearly prayer is something God desires and expects us to do. But while no doubt that's true, it's also a fairly shallow answer, isn't it? We might then ask, why does God expect us to pray? What do we or should we get out of prayer? Do we get anything out of prayer? Does prayer have a purpose beyond simple obedience? So let's take a step back for a moment and remind ourselves what prayer is. Fundamentally, prayer is an asking of God, a petition, a request. So if prayer is an asking, then maybe the purpose is surely to bring about the receiving. We ask so that we will receive. 
God wants us to bring to him our needs and concerns. And he certainly wants to give his children good gifts. But at the same time, we're told in Matthew chapter 6 that God knows what you need before you ask him. And indeed, the Holy Spirit intercedes, helping us when we don't know what to ask for. So, if God already knows what we want and need, and he actively works through the Spirit to ask for what we can't even express ourselves, then surely the purpose of the prayer must be deeper still than just a tool to enlighten God uh, about what we need, as if he doesn't know already. Because if God already knows what we want and need, just our saying so doesn't add anything to the process. Surely there's more involved than that. To that end, I want to highlight two brief passages from the, the message translation. Because I think the way Eugene Peterson phrases things is quite interesting. The first is from Matthew chapter 6. This context is immediately following Jesus' example of the Lord's Prayer. And that includes, if you remember, the plea for forgiveness from God just as we have forgiven our debtors. And Jesus goes on to say there in verse 14, according to Peterson, In prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. And the second reference is from Romans chapter 8. This is the passage I've alluded to before that talks about the Spirit interceding on our behalf. Peter Peterson puts it this way in verse 26. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. What I like here is the connection that Peterson makes between prayer and its effect on us, not just in terms of what we ask for, but through the process of prayer. In other words, no matter what we say, even no matter what we ask for, in some way prayer changes us. When we ask God for forgiveness, it reminds us that we also need to be forgivers. When we ask for our daily bread, it reminds us that God ultimately is the provider of everything that we have and need. And that we too should be about in our own lives helping to provide for the needs of others, just as our needs have been provided for. So ultimately, the practice of prayer reminds us of our complete dependence on God. As Peterson puts it, prayer keeps us present before God. I like that idea. Because Jesus spoke about this complete dependence that we have on God in John chapter 15, where we read, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is, my, is, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is why we pray. Without God, we're helpless. We can do nothing. But with God, when we abide in him and his word, when we're connected to the vine, when we're part of the vine, God blesses us. He hears our prayers and we bear fruit and God is glorified through us. But only in him. Remembering this takes humility. Remembering this teaches us humility. Prayer teaches us humility. You see, when I think about the mockery that people make of the idea of thoughts and prayers as mere platitudes, calling instead for action, I don't see much humility in that attitude. Of course God calls us to action. I'm not saying that isn't appropriate. But as Jesus said, action apart from himself, apart from the vine, apart from the word, is fruitless. Because ultimately, it's he himself who is powerful and able to bring about all good things. God calls us to action. But if it's proud, arrogant action against his will, it'll ultimately come to nothing. You see, Prayer teaches us the humility that comes from knowing our limitations, recognising our own faults, our own sins, our own need for forgiveness. Prayer teaches us that there are some things we can't control, some things we can't undo. We can't undo accidents or mistakes of the past. We can't prevent natural disasters. We can't prevent all illness. And we certainly can't prevent or undo death. In many ways, we are literally powerless. But God can. God is powerful. When we bring our actions and our prayers before God, we remind ourselves and remind those around us that our actions are at best limited. That despite our best intentions, our plans often come awry. We end up creating more pain or more problems through things we haven't foreseen or mistakes we might make. You only need to have a cursory study of history to see the truth of that. But when we pray, we're reminded by our own complicity and problems, our complicity in the problems and suffering of the world. And that realisation calls us to humility. To quote from James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Plans not brought before God and his will are just arrogant boasting. But prayer teaches us humility. It isn't a substitute for action, but it's a call to humble action. Action that recognises our limitations, our weaknesses, our flaws and our sin. It ultimately recognises where the true good, where the true power comes from in God. If you think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee, for all his proud boasting, didn't need anything from God. He had it all together. He did everything right. He was righteous. He was practically equal with God, wasn't he? In contrast, the tax collector knew that he needed everything from God, everything that he couldn't do for himself. He was helpless. And which of them went away getting what they'd asked for? It wasn't the proud heart. It was the humble heart who recognised his own helplessness before God. See, prayer calls us and trains us to that kind of humility. So I hope that's an encouraging thought as we open this series on prayer. Thanks for your attention. I'll pass off now for some announcements. Thank you.